Hebrews chapter 10, and we will read, uh, with God's help, verse 1 through 25 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. Let's pray again. Our gracious God and our Father, may you please help us this day by your Spirit's power to read and understand the things you have written for our salvation. May we love Jesus Christ. May we see Christ preached from this passage. May we believe on him in whom you've sent. Help us, O God, for we are in need. Feed us, O Lord, that we would not go hungry. Enlighten our minds, O Lord, that we would not be conformed to the darkness of this world. Grant us, O Lord, an affection for your word and that we might treasure it up in our heart and meditate upon it day and night. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. Listen now to the word. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never buy the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, 
and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. <clears throat> well, we have been talking, for uh, those of you who are visiting, uh, again, welcome. Uh, we have been going through the book of Hebrews, and one of the themes that we see recurring in this book is the superiority of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. This is important uh, for our day as it is in their day. Now, some of the particulars might be a little bit different in that in the book of Hebrews, they're writing to uh, Jews who were maybe thinking of leaving the new covenant and going back uh, under the ceremonial regulations. But it is also uh, something that's for us in that we need to be careful that we uh, not fail to persevere ourselves. You and I, uh, though we live in different, different circumstances, you and I live in a different age than was in this text 2,000 years ago. Um, we are, have different ethnic backgrounds than those to whom this letter was written. Nevertheless, you and I have a need to persevere. And one of the ways that you and I persevere is by regularly being reminded from the scriptures of the superiority of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that while God gives us the whole of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, and that there is a continuity in that revelation as you work from Genesis all the way through to Revelation 22, nevertheless, there is a progression in that continuity. And we have used that illustration of the flower, boys and girls. Remember the flower that I spoke of? At first you have the stem and the leaves, and then you have the budding of the flower. And the Bible is like that. Redemption is like that. God's work in your life, uh, in the history of the church, is like that. We are living in this age of the new covenant. We are now in the, the flower of God's uh, redemption and his work here. And so what I want to do here is, um, really there are two main sections uh, in our text. The first section is verses 1 through 18, in which we see the supremacy of the new covenant. And then in verse 19 to 25, 
we see the applications. I love this chapter in one way in that I think it's a real help to see what real teaching and preaching in the church is supposed to be like. Because if you notice and pay attention, you'll see here that the author of Hebrews is taking passages from the Old Testament, he's teaching their meaning, and, he, and he's applying it uh, at the end of the chapter. And uh, we always want to do the same thing. Every preaching and uh, moment is, is a, a part teaching, but also part application. And uh, so we're going to divide this into two parts. One is to show you the supremacy of the new covenant, and, and that's in verses 1 through 18. And then in verses uh, 19 and following, I want to give you four applications that come from this text for us today. So uh, the supremacy of the new covenant. This, boys and girls, this is a one-point sermon. You, you can remember this uh, when mom and dad ask you about this at lunch, okay? That the, it, it was about the supremacy of the new covenant. Uh, but then we want to apply that specifically in four ways, four ways in which the uh, superiority of the new covenant is applied in our daily Christian life, all right? So how is it that we see here the supremacy of the new covenant? I would suggest to you, no surprise, I have some subpoints. I would suggest to you there, there are several ways in verses 1 through 18 that we see the supremacy of the new covenant. First of all, you see that there was a multiplication of sacrifices in the old covenant, but now we have one sacrifice in the new. You had a, multiple, a multiplicity of sacrifices in the old covenant, but now you have one, one new one. Secondly, that not only the number of sacrifices is spoken of here, but the type of the sacrifice. In the old covenant, you had animal sacrifices, which ultimately could not wash away sins, but now we have the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then we see thirdly, that in the new covenant, we have a better priest in Jesus Christ. You had inferior priests. And we talked a little bit about each of these things here. And as I said, that the author of Hebrews tends to reiterate in this letter here. And so I want to go through these three points somewhat a little bit faster because we have seen some of these themes in previous chapters. But then I want to get to the applications in verse 19 to 25. But look with me here, just quickly here, verses 1 through 4, we see that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant in that we have a superior one-time sacrifice versus a multiplicity of sacrifices in the old covenant. Look at verse 1. Notice here the author of Hebrews says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the form of things so that you have the, the analogy of shadow and substance here. What is, what is more important, boys and girls? You or your shadow? You, if it, let's just imagine it today was a sunny day. I know it's not a sunny day, but let's just imagine it's a sunny day and you walk out onto the sidewalk. Should I look at you, Samuel? Or should I look at your shadow and say, hello, Samuel, good morning. You are more important, right? In the same way, the new covenant in Christ is of greater, far greater importance than the shadow. The animal sacrifices were the shadow. The substance belongs to Jesus. So he says that these things 
uh, to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices... Now, what are these same sacrifices? These same sacrifices are the goats and the bulls and the calves. The goats, the bulls, and the calves. Time and again, which they offer continually year by year by year by year by year. Every year. It's more sacrifices, more animals, more bleating, more uh, blood running into the river Kidron on the Day of Atonement, or on the day of, uh, of um, the Passover, rather. He says, otherwise would they not have ceased? That is, if these sacrifices really were efficacious, why do they keep going on? Why do you have to keep doing this? You notice there, too, something about the Mass, the inferiority of the Catholic Church's view of the Mass. What is the Mass? You say, isn't it just what we're doing? Uh-uh. No, what are they doing that we're not doing? We are commemorating what Christ has done once and forever. They are re-sacrificing over and over again. That's why the priest turns away. Because he's offering up to God the body and the blood, the literal body and blood of Jesus. What is, what is our text saying here? If you have to repeat the offering again and again and again, it's what? It's not efficacious. We, have a, we are living in a superior time because why? Because Christ has died once and forever. Notice if you look at verse 12, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished and fulfilled what the animal sacrifices were always pointing to. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. No, they have to keep going back, don't they? They have to keep going back to the temple made by human hands. They have to go back to the same priest they saw last year. The high priest has to go back to the same mercy seat and see last year's dark blood on that mercy seat and sprinkle new blood on top of the old blood from last year. Because it in and of itself is not efficacious. That is, it is not effective. It, it is not working. It cannot atone for sin in and of itself. Now, you might say, well, then why in the world would God command such sacrifices? Because they were, a, they were under a time of probation. They were in a time of infancy. And they needed the teaching that would lead them to Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ would come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Notice in verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is the reminder of sins year by year. So notice here, what is the argument? The old covenant, lots of sacrifices, lots of blood, lots of repetition. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's the second argument now. Notice that it's not just the number of sacrifices that need to be made in the Old Covenant versus the one in the New Covenant. But the type of the sacrifice itself 
is inferior in the Old Covenant. It is impossible for the blood of animals to take away sins. Now, God would accept the worship of the Old Covenant as it was done by faith in anticipation of what Christ would do. But in and of itself, there is no inherent value in the blood of of a bull being poured out on an altar and its blood being put on the four horns of the altar by the priest or being brought into the inner sanctuary and sprinkled on the mercy seat in September. There, there is no value in the, an animal cannot take the place of a human being. If a human being has sinned in the sight of a holy God, an animal is not a sufficient substitute to atone for a human being's sin. It was, it was always to be anticipatory. It was always to be typological when the worshiper placed his hands on the head of the animal to signify the transfer of the sin from the worshiper to the animal and then seeing the animal die. Even the worshiper back then realized that cannot really forgive me of my sins. I need a redeemer who is made in the image of God. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the number of sacrifices shows the inferiority of the Old Covenant. The type of the sacrifice shows the inferiority of the Old Covenant. And then notice here, even the Old Testament itself, as the author of Hebrews teaches from Psalm 40, he shows us that the Old Covenant itself saw itself as inferior. Look at verse 5. He starts teaching here from Psalm 40, and he says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God." What is, he, what, is the, what is the point of quoting from Psalm 40 here? The point that the author of Hebrews is saying is that Psalm 40 was speaking about the inferiority of the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant and the need for Christ as anticipated in this psalm to come. Notice that he says, but a body you have prepared for me. Who is the me? And the author of Hebrews tells us that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. He says, But this will, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Who is the body in Psalm 40? It is the body of Jesus Christ. It is the substitutionary body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember here at the Lord's table. It is pointing us back to the very same thing Psalm 40 is pointing us towards. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ was anticipated in the old covenant. Now that Jesus Christ has come, the Bible says, cling by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and do not leave him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you struggle for an assurance of salvation and you worry, am I really saved? Are my sins really forgiven? 
Has God really atoned for me? Am I really accepted by God? Am I really justified in the sight of God? Can I stand in the day when God will bring forth and open all the books? How can I stand before that God who has an omniscience that knows everything about me? And the Bible teaches that if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you will be saved. If you confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe upon him from the heart, the Bible says that sacrifice of Jesus Christ is acceptable to God. And only that sacrifice is acceptable to God. That is how I am made right. That is how you are made right. So if you you feel worried at times about your sins, if you feel worried at times, are my sins really atoned for? Am I really right with God? Pastor, when I look at my sins and I see the the multiplicity of my sins, I get worried. (coughs) You know, what do I do? The Bible teaches that we believe on Christ. We try to get a bigger view of Jesus Christ. We try to, you know, don't go back, you know, to to, to try and, well, maybe if I I do more for God. Maybe if I, I pray more. Maybe if I try to do more, that this will take away some of my sins. That's what, the author of Hebrews is warning us against. He's saying, don't move away from Jesus Christ. Don't don't move away from Jesus Christ, even for good things like reading your Bible and giving yourself to prayer. Because your, your, your prayers cannot atone for your sin. Your Bible reading cannot atone for sins. Teaching Sunday school cannot atone for sin. Church going in and of itself cannot atone for sin. Now, I'm not against any of those things, and one of my applications is going to be go to church. But the point is that we cannot put that in front of Jesus Christ. We cannot move away from Jesus Christ. You and I always need to be coming back to the work of Jesus Christ. What's my only hope in this life? It is Jesus Christ. What's my only hope in death? It's Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. It is all of Christ. From beginning to end, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the A and the Z. And the author of Hebrews is telling, pleading with the original audience of this letter to not move away from Jesus Christ. Even the old covenant was telling them not to move away from Jesus Christ. Psalm 40 is telling you don't move away from Jesus Christ. The animals that are being sacrificed are telling you don't move away from Jesus Christ. The goats, the bulls, the calves, the Levites are telling you don't move away from Jesus Christ if you rightly understand what the significance of those sacrifices and of those priests really are. All of the Old Testament law is pointing you to Jesus Christ. Now, how do you come to Jesus Christ? You come to Jesus Christ by faith alone in him. You come to Jesus Christ by faith 
Because what is faith? Faith is emptying yourself of yourself and saying, I have nothing to offer. I can only find hope in Jesus Christ. And only in Jesus Christ. Christ is my only hope. It is not in my prayers. It is not in my piety. It is not in my Presbyterianism. It is in Jesus. And and so I come to Jesus Christ by faith in him. I believe in him. I trust him. I look to what he has done for me in the scriptures. I read the Bible. And and not so that I can feel self-righteous, but so I can see Jesus. Not so I can pat myself on the back and say, man, I got through another McShane calendar. It's, it's, the McShane calendar is to keep me going to Jesus. You and I cannot move an inch from Jesus. Jesus Christ is everything that the Bible is teaching in the old and in the new. And so when you see here the... Uh, author citing passages from, uh, the, from the Psalms, from Psalm 40. He's arguing here to people who are thinking they need to go back into the shadows. Don't go back there because even the shadows are telling you don't come here. They're saying go to Christ. He quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31 in verse 15 and 16 as well. So he's using a variety of Old Testament passages here. And he, he, is, he is saying that here that Jesus is the one you need to go to. So let me uh, reiterate here. Number one, the old covenant is inferior because of the number of sacrifices. The old covenant is inferior because of the type of sacrifice. The old covenant is inferior because the old covenant texts tell you it's inferior, like Psalm 40. And then the last sub-point here is that because... The, the priesthood of Jesus Christ is superior to the old covenant priesthood. And you see that in verses really 11 to 18 here. In verse 11, you see the old priests, and they're offering the same old, same old sacrifices. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Same old priests, same old sacrifices. But what? In verse 12, you have Christ who is finished with his sacrifice. Now, this probably shows that this book probably was written while the temple was still standing. Because he could say in in the present tense, the same old sacrifices are continually being offered that can never take away sins But then in verse 12, he says, But he, Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. What is the significance of Jesus sitting down at the right hand of God? The significance is this. He has done everything he was supposed to do in in his earthly ministry, and now he gets to sit. Now he gets to reign. He has accomplished that which the Father has given him to do, and he can take his rest, if you will, at the right hand of the Father. He may sit now because he has already offered himself up on the cross. Notice in verse 13, he is, Jesus continues there 
waiting for that time until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So Jesus continues to, to this day to be sitting at the right hand of the Father. And verse 14, notice here that again the emphasis is that there is one offering. For by one offering, Jesus Christ has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It is a better covenant. Even Jeremiah chapter 31, which he quotes here, shows that it's a better covenant. It's a superior covenant because Jesus Christ writes the law that we read this morning, the Ten Commandments, on our heart by His Spirit. Now, let me move here to the second part, which also has four parts. And that is the application here. We are as they were, living in a better age, a better, a better epic in Jesus Christ. So what, what do we gain here by way of application? Let me suggest four things to us today. Number one, draw near to God as those who have been cleansed. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has inaugurated for us through the veil that is this flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he's showing there the supremacy of the covenant, new covenant, supremacy of Christ. Verse 22, the first application is what? Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near. The first thing that the author of Hebrews says to this people who are tempted to be wayward is draw near to God in Jesus Christ. Because Christ is superior, because the new covenant is superior, because the sacrifice is superior, because the, the uh, temple into which Christ has gone is superior than the one made by human hands in Jerusalem. And for other reasons... Draw near to the Lord through Jesus Christ. He is saying, because you know Jesus Christ by grace, through faith in him, draw near, draw closer to him. Don't move away from Christ, but draw closer to Christ. James tells us the same thing. When you read the epistle of James, James gives you even this promise that if you will draw near to him, God will draw near to you. We have that promise corporately as a congregation. If we will, in worship, draw near to the Lord, we have the promise of God that God will be near to us. Now, you and I have need of the presence of God and the nearness of God. Even back in the days of Enoch, it was said that Enoch walked with God and he was no more. Enoch walked so closely, it seems, from uh, the Scripture with God that he even had the privilege of going into the presence of God without necessarily going through death. We have this promise uh, to draw near to God, and God will be near to us. Now, that doesn't mean, boys and girls, that we will escape death as Enoch did, but there is still the promise that even in death, God will be near to us. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what is the great promise? The Lord will be near to me. The Lord will be near to me. Draw near to God. So my application is quite simple. Do what you need to do to draw near to God. Do what you need to do to draw near to God. 
Maybe that's for you reading your Bible more. Maybe you're a good Bible reader. Maybe you need to pray. Do that which you need to do to draw near to God. For some of you, you're doing what you need to do by being here in the house of the Lord. Uh, if there are those maybe who are watching on, on TV, you know, one of the things you may need to do is come to the house of the Lord and be in the presence of God with God's people. I think there's a greater blessing. Now, I'm thankful for the technology so that when we're sick, we can watch and we can still feel in, in a part. But I don't think that that was ever, that technology was supposed to substitute the Lord's Day worship. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> Let me, that's another application coming. But draw near to the Lord. Notice what it says here. Draw near as those who have been cleansed, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near not as a slave who is about, who's afraid he's going to get struck, but what draw near as a confident child of God, as a son and daughter of Abraham and Sarah, draw near to God as a child would unto a heaven, heavenly father. Draw near to God because your father wants to draw near to you. We see this even in Luke chapter 15, don't we? This is wonderful news if you have gotten away from God. Because in Luke chapter 15, we have the story of the two brothers, both of whom have gotten away from the father. One of them showed that he had gotten away from the father by leaving the father's presence. The other didn't leave the farm, but he still got away from the father, as evidenced by the fact that he wouldn't rejoice when the father rejoiced. Both were estranged from God. So we may be speaking even here today to two groups of people. Some of you may have gotten away from God by leaving the church. Others of you haven't left the physical property of the church but have been estranged from God. Here's the good news, that God delights to draw near to you if you will just come back in. If you are a younger brother who has left the church, left the farm, left the ranch, and gone into a strange country, and you find yourselves impoverished, and you find yourselves feeding pigs, and you find yourselves in a bad place, the good news is you can go back to God and what? Jesus tells us the Father will run to you. Now, according to some commentators, Hebraic older men just do not run like that. That was seen to be unseemly. <laughs> but here we have a picture of a father running to one who has gone astray. But notice also you have that same father pleading with the one who hasn't left the church but is still estranged. And the Father is pleading with him, come on in and rejoice with us. He is pleading with the older brother. And you may find yourself really not very close to God, even though you, know, you haven't been absent from church. But for you, that relationship with the Father is estranged because you've turned your relationship into some kind of works. I've always been doing what you told me to do, God. I've always been serving you. I've always been in church. I've always, and you, you make your list of all the things you've been doing. 
And yet you, you can't come in and rejoice like the angels in heaven do because you're so embittered. And, and, and you're estranged from the father just as the prodigal was. But the good news is here that the father's what? He's, he is pleading with both sons to be reconciled to him. You see, this is not a parable about just the younger brother. We, we often think of it in those terms, but really this is a father who's pleading with two groups of people. And who is in view? Luke tells us. Luke tells us that Jesus looks out in the crowd and what does he see in the crowd? He sees younger brothers, those who are Israelites who have strayed from the law and are living a wild life and he sees sinners and he also sees Pharisees out there. And both need to draw near to God. What's the problem that both of these brothers have and that people have today, whether they're in the church or whether they've left the church? They have left Jesus. They have lost sight of Jesus. And one strayed from Jesus to the left and one strayed from Jesus to the right. The answer is, you need to see the supremacy of the new covenant and of Jesus Christ and his once forever sacrifice. You need a fresh vision of the work of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. That's what will enable you to draw near unto God. So that's the first application is draw near unto God. Number two, we see that in addition, the author of Hebrews showing us the supremacy of the new covenant, secondly, makes another application. And that is, he says, hold fast the confession of your hope. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, this is very similar uh, to the first. The first being draw near to God. But the second is, is that as you lay hold of Christ by faith, do not let go. Hold fast to your confession of your hope. What is your hope? Your hope is Jesus Christ. Your hope is that though I am a terrible sinner, God is a God of grace who has loved me and he has given Jesus Christ for me. That is my hope. That is my hope in this life and for the life to come. My hope is that Jesus is the Son of God. My hope is Jesus Christ lived that perfect life, died that substitutionary death, was raised from the dead vicariously for me. And, and he is saying, don't waver from that confession. Number three, by way of application, the supremacy of the new covenant says that you can draw near to God, hold fast to that confession of yours. Number three, serve one another and encourage one another. Isn't that interesting that he makes an application, not just vertically twice to God, but now he makes an, a, a horizontal application. Because of the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of the new covenant, he says what? Let us consider how to minister to one another, right? To stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let the work of Jesus Christ be a motive for serving and loving others. 
and ministering to one another. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Notice that the obligation here is not just to God, but to one another. Why? Well, because we are members of one another, being mutual members of Christ. Because of the work of Christ, we are the body of Christ. We are members, therefore, of one another. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Uh, We, therefore, have an obligation to the people of God, not just ourselves and God. We, we are not lone rangers. Uh, in, in America, there's a lot of independence. Lots of, I can do it on my own. But the church was not made that way. We were made uh, to be interconnected and to love one another, to serve one another, and to encourage one another. We have need of mutual encouragement in the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to move on to the final application that we see here. Because of the supremacy of the new covenant, here is the last one. He says that you do not forsake the meetings of the church. He says in verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. Obviously, in that day, some of those Hebraic Christians had gotten to the point where they were skipping the meetings on the Lord's Day, and maybe some of the other meetings. He says, Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Because Jesus Christ is a better priest, because Jesus Christ is a better sacrifice, because Jesus Christ has died once and forever, once and for all, I must be glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. We need to gather together corporately as the people of God. This is something that is important that I think is lost. There's a tendency for many to think that the most important thing is your quiet time. I would argue that I think the most important thing uh, at a practical level is not the quiet time, but it is the corporate time. It is the corporate gathering of the people of God to worship God and to receive the word of God and to receive the sacrament. That this is the means that God has ordained chiefly for our welfare. Again, I want you to be having family worship. I want you to give yourself to private prayer. But what is most important is the assembling together of the people of God. You know, Peter, and I'll close with this, Peter... um, uses that really strange analogy, boys and girls. He uses this this picture, and he he says, you are a living stone. You are living stones. We don't think of, we we know about the rolling stones, but the living stones, that's a good band name, the living stones. The living stones, why does Peter call us the living stones? Because he is saying here, because of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done, God is building and has built a better new covenant temple than the one that was in Jerusalem. The one in Jerusalem was made by human hands. It was made with rock and cement. The one that God is building is made up of people filled with the Spirit of God. And so this concept of not forsaking the assembling of the saints is all the more important because 
what kind of temple do you have as some of the stones keep forgetting to show up? What kind of temple do you have if people are neglecting the house of the Lord? We have an obligation not only to one another, uh, but also even to God to be in the house of the Lord with each other, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Amen.